Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Pretty exciting that we've been here now for two years doing this. I know, it's ex- thank you so much for sticking with us and listening this whole time. Yeah, especially over our long break. We needed time off over the holidays. You probably did too, but now we're back. And this podcast is one that we've talked about from the very beginning. We are going to discuss the life of Patrick Ronan Claiborne, an Irish immigrant turned Confederate general who is known for his exploits both on and off the field of battle. And this is going to be episode one of a two-part series on Patrick Claiborne. born in County Cork, Ireland on March 16, 1828. His parents were Joseph Claiborne, a doctor, and Mary Ann Renane Claiborne. He was their third child. His family referred to him as Renane, his middle name. Patrick's mother died when he was only 18 months old, and his father married a woman named Isabella Stewart, who was Patrick's um, tutor. A little bit scandalous there. Right. Mm-hmm. Patrick's father was not a landowner, but he enjoyed a higher status comparatively brought to him by his religion. He was a Protestant and his political party. Dr. Claiborne was a Whig, which happened to be the ruling party at that time. That's going to come back into play later on. And Patrick grew up in a time in Ireland that was characterized by both social and political upheaval. One of these biggest kind of political things that was going on was a demand for reforms, especially those involving the Catholic emancipation, which basically means that they were in the process of removing certain restrictions placed on Roman Catholics in Ireland, such as not being able to vote in certain elections. And if the sources are true, his father, a Protestant, in 1826 voted for one of the more liberal candidates that was in support of removing these restrictions on Catholics. Now, tragedy struck yet again in Patrick Claiborne's life. When he was only 15, his father died after contracting typhus from one of his patients. That happened in November of 1843. Patrick was expected to carry on the family profession as a doctor. He apprenticed for two years, and he planned on studying at the Apothecary's Hall in Trinity College, but failed the entrance exam. Did he go to Hogwarts? (laughs) Apothecary's Hall does sound like... He studied herbology or something like that. Yes, but we do not know that he was a wizard. We can't be certain, at least. So humiliated, Patrick refused to return home, and instead, he enlisted in the 41st Regiment of Foot in the British Army. Irish recruits in the British Army were primarily young, poor outcasts from society, looking for both an adventure and a paycheck. And because of this, they were not very well respected. To many, they represented British tyranny, during a time in which many wished for independence from Britain. Which, it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of the first Star Wars movie, episode four, because Luke, who was a poor farm boy, didn't like his life, and he was hoping originally to enlist in the Imperial Academy. So he didn't necessarily agree with the Imperial Academy, but it was escape from a life that he didn't like. Much like our young Han Solo, who joins the, what, their Air Force? He, he, also, he, the Imperial Academy yeah, right. to become a pilot to escape his life on whatever planet. I can't remember what it's called. Corellia. Corellia, Gosh, yes. We're nerds. And of course, when he when he enlisted in the British Army, he assumed that he was going to be shipped to India, 
where he would be able to further disappear and escape the shame of failing out of medical college. Instead, he is stationed in a town, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Mulliganer, Mulgnar, Mullingar, Mullingar in Ireland, so not particularly far from his own death. And it was at this time that Ireland was going through a, an event that came to be known as the Great Famine. A blight had infected much of the potato crop, which was a staple food product. And landowners would often pay laborers in crops, but when crops started failing, they had no money to pay their workers, which created a massive strain on the working class. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. The 41st Regiment of Foot, so Claiborne's regiment, was called upon to assist local police to maintain order and to evict tenants who couldn't pay their rent. This kind of put Claiborne in a weird position because he is part of probably closer to that working class than he is British. But he's asked to be basically acting upon his fellow countrymen. And to quote one of Claiborne's biographers who says, what began as running away from his problems had brought Claiborne into a moral dilemma. Guarding food from fellow countrymen to protect his own social class and the interests of an oppressive government. He wrote a letter to his stepmother around this time in which Claiborne referred to himself as a poor, servile mercenary without a will or thought of my own in some soul-cramping fortress or barracks. Patrick returned home in the midst of all this, and he found his family was in great debt. On November 5th, 1849, at the suggestion of his stepmother, Patrick and his three full siblings, Anne, William, and Joseph, boarded a ship called the Bridgetown and set sail for New Orleans, Louisiana, where they landed on Christmas Day. Now, Patrick and his family were not the only people to emigrate from Ireland during this period. During the Great Famine, it's estimated that about two million Irishmen left the country, many of them to the United States. After arriving in the United States, the siblings traveled up the Mississippi River looking for work, and eventually they made their way to Cincinnati, Ohio, where Patrick found work as a drugstore clerk. And through this job, he was recommended to manage a drugstore in the frontier town of Helena, Arkansas. Claiborne arrived in Helena in April of 1850, and he began to work at Nash and Grant Drugstore. Claiborne immediately involved himself in the local community and was very well respected. He was in the local debate club, the chess club, a temperance society, and the Masonic Lodge. He was later described by a friend, Leonard Magnum, as six feet high, broad-shouldered, but spare-built, very active, had remarkable endurance, large, dark gray eyes, awkward in his manners, a poor conversationalist, exceedingly absent-minded, except when on duty in the battlefield, perfectly indifferent to danger, possessed of fine literary attainments. But, rather ungainly, there was a directness and angularity about him that was the foe of grace. Right, so he's not particularly handsome, he doesn't have the best social skills, but when it comes down to it, especially in a leadership position, he has it where it counts. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Nash, his employer, did say, quote, Claiborne was one of the most fastidious young men I ever knew. When a lady would come into the store to purchase an article, he would blush up to his eyelashes. Not his eyes, his eyelashes. His eyelashes. <laughs> but he was trusted by his employers because he was both a reliable employee and he was a good friend. He actually saved Charles Nash's life on at least one occasion. 
Now, I love this story. It comes from a book, A Meteor Shining Brightly, which is a series of essays written on Patrick's life. And it goes that in 1852, a Mormon man named Gay came through town with six of his wives. Nash chose to attend a sermon Gay was preaching. And when he overheard him promoting polygamy, Nash complained to the local sheriff, who ordered Gay to no longer hold his meetings. This sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Yeah, it also sounds like a joke that I would say. <laughs> right, it does. <laughs> and according to Nash, later, Gay came to the store and, and I quote, attempted to pull a pistol to shoot me, but Claiborne, whose eye was keener than mine, and knowing that I was unarmed, jumped over the counter and quickly seizing Gay by the shoulders, kicked him out of the house, saying to him, if you ever come in here again, I will serve you worse. Not long after, Gay and his six wives left town for good. Eventually, Claiborne actually bought a portion of the store. He bought out one of the co-owners, Hector Grant, and the store was renamed Nash and Claiborne. And on February 16, 1855, when Claiborne was almost 27 years old, he became a naturalized citizen of the United States. And around this time, he also began studying to become a lawyer. Now, let's take a moment to talk about Claiborne's politics. So, politically, Claiborne would have likely identified with the Whig Party, which, at least in, the, in his early years of moving to the United States, which was in decline by the time of his arrival to the country. We mentioned earlier that Claiborne's father was also part of the Whig Party in Ireland. It should be noted that these are two separate parties, but they do have some similar ideologies. The Whigs in the UK supported a constitutional monarchy. They were against a king with absolute power. The Whig Party in America also stood for the sovereignty of the people, so both parties were afraid of tyrannical leadership. Now, many Northern Whigs would eventually join the Republican Party, but in Arkansas, Claiborne would have had the choice between the Know Nothing Party and the Democratic Party. The Know Nothings were anti-immigrant, so Claiborne obviously then didn't want that party, so he sided with the Democrats. And in 1855, joined the Democratic Party, alongside with his good friends, Charles Nash and Thomas Heinemann. And this kind of brings up an interesting analogy, at least I think it was an interesting analogy that I thought of as we were researching this. Imagine that you walk into a room and there's, there's two strangers arguing with one another and just like shouting at one another. You may not be thinking as much about the broad points that they're making as much as just how they're conducting themselves in the argument. So Claiborne moves to the United States and this time in which the debate around slavery is reaching a fever pitch. And there are these two political parties in Helena, Arkansas, and one of them happens to be anti-immigrant, so he automatically sides with the other one. It may not be because every, every part of their argument resonates with him, but he has to pick one, and he can't pick the know-nothing party, so he becomes a Democrat. Yeah, whether he fully supported everything that they said or not. Right. And in January of 1856... Claiborne was admitted to the bar. Now, Claiborne's friend and law partner, Thomas Hyman, ran for the Senate, and Patrick supported him. In one incident, Patrick was wounded when Hyman's opponent, know-nothing W.D. Rice, ambushed them on the street. So, because of that, Rice ended up then withdrawing from the race. So, we've now had more than one occasion Patrick Claiborne has been willing to risk his life for a friend. Yeah, um, we should have been friends with Patrick Claiborne. <laughs> Built him bodyguard. For the next few years, Claiborne worked as a circuit lawyer, traveling surrounding counties regularly. During this time, he also helped his stepmother and two step-siblings to move to the United States, where they settled in Cincinnati, Ohio, with Claiborne's older sister, Anne. 
And during the secession crisis in 1860, a local militia was formed called the Yell Rifles, named after the Arkansas governor Archibald Yell. Which totally sounds like a name from like... A comic book? A comic book or like an old novel Mm -hmm. or something like that. Patrick was elected captain of the Yell Rifles. Arkansas itself seceded on May 6th, 1861, and joined the newly formed Confederate States of America. In one of the excerpts from A Meteor Shining Brightly, historian Mark H. Hull argues that, quote, born and raised in Ireland, his understanding of independence differs from that in the United States. In the era of Wolf Roan, Robert Emmett, and Daniel O'Connell, who were all Irish independence movement leaders, independence in the Irish sense conveyed the dream for political self-determinism not independence compromised by a secondary issue. It must have been inconceivable for Claiborne to have imagined a people that would rather surrender a fighting chance for real political freedom than to abandon the institution of slavery. So in other words, Claiborne was an idealist, and to him, independence was the most important thing. And he would eventually find out if he was alone in that belief. Ooh, a bit of a foreshadowing there to episode two of our Claiborne podcast. Bum, bum, bum. Patrick wrote to his brother shortly after Arkansas seat, and he, he said this, I am with the South in life or in death, in victory or in defeat. All the companies appear determined to elect me colonel. This is a fearfully responsible position, and I dread this honor. But I intend to turn my attention to it and do the best I can for the cause I am embarked on. The Yell Rifles were eventually incorporated into the 1st Arkansas Volunteer Infantry Regiment, and Patrick was indeed elected their colonel. He was promoted multiple times, eventually making his way up to Major General. He led men in some of the largest battles of the Western Theater, including the Battle of Shiloh, the Siege of Corinth, the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, the Battle of Perryville, where he was wounded twice, the Battle of Stones River, the Battle of Chickamauga, and the Chattanooga Campaign. In the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, Patrick, on August 30th, 1862, was struck in the face by shrapnel and forced to leave the battlefield. This wound knocked out two of his front teeth and, according to a fellow soldier, gave his voice a particular hissing sound, which was very unpleasant when he spoke in an excited or angry manner. It's not sound pleasant. (laughs) Yeah, he had to convalesce for six weeks. And through all this, Claiborne became a very respected commanding officer and the division he commanded were known as one of the most reliable in the Confederate Army. In November of 1863, during the Chattanooga Campaign, Claiborne's division made a valiant stand at Ringgold Gap in Georgia, with his division of roughly 4,000 holding off around 15,000 Federal troops and ensuring the safety of the rest of the Army of Tennessee. For this action, Claiborne received congressional citation from the Confederate government. On January 2nd, 1864, Claiborne requested a meeting with the high-ranking officers in the Army of Tennessee and delivered a prepared speech. Unbeknownst to anyone there, that day Claiborne had less than a year to live, and this is a moment that would define him and perhaps haunt him for the rest of his days. In his speech, Claiborne delivered a passionate and well-reasoned proposal to arm slaves in exchange for their freedom. Although he certainly was not alone in this opinion, many of those in power viewed this proposal as heretical and perhaps even treasonous to the true cause of the Confederacy. Thank you for listening to episode one of season three of 10 and 20. Make sure you come back in two weeks where we'll continue with part two 
of our Claiborne series. Also, make sure you follow us on Instagram. If you go to Instagram, we are at 10 and 20 podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast, and you can follow us there. And if you go to boft.org slash podcast, you can buy one of our t-shirts and you can sign up for our newsletter, our e-newsletter. And just recently, we opened up registration for this summer's 2020s History Summer Camp. So if you have some kids wanting to come to Carhouse and Carnton, dive a little bit into the history of the two sites, Tennessee history and American history in general, it is the perfect camp for you. You can check that out on our website, boff.org slash summer dash camp. Thank you so much for listening.